0: Welcome to the Imagination Redeemed podcast. I'm Brian Brown. At our upcoming Imagination Redeemed conference on September 30th and October 1st, Heidi White will be teaching a keynote session on the art of Christian memory. To tee that up, we wanted to share with you a talk she gave at our artist's retreat in 2020. This talk explores courage in artistry, but it's actually a good primer on political theology as well. It explores two very different attitudes we can take toward the past and how each one needs the other if we're to have a healthy understanding of how to live in the present. Uh, So in this talk, I'm gonna offer some reflections on the virtue of courage, or as the ancients and the medievals called it, the virtue of fortitude. And like all virtues, courage does not come naturally. Uh, It's the fruit of labor and grace. Courage is hard fought, like all virtues, which means that it is the happy result of spiritual and physical effort. So we develop courage through habits and contemplation rather than blind action or good intentions. Nobody is born courageous. It's something that we all have to develop. Um, Becoming courageous is not the work of a single moment of testing, but rather many moments uh, of a lifetime of repentance, self-denial, prayer, and noble action. So in this talk, I'm going to answer three questions. Uh, One, what is courage? I'm a good Aristotelian. You have to define your terms. And then I'll answer the question, why does an artist need courage? And then the question, how can an artist be courageous? So first, let's explore the question of what is courage. Uh, So first, allow me please uh, to comment that without the rich heritage of other people's ideas on this subject, uh, their work and examples and writings, I would literally have no clue about the virtue of fortitude. Um, I want to confess to you today that I am a deeply fearful person. Fear is actually a defining feature of my hidden shadow self, which also many of us have, all of us. And I have lived with all of the hallmarks of the scars of fear in my personal and professional life. Anxiety, sleeplessness, tension, controlling behavior, all of it. You want to hear more about that? I might not tell you because I'd be afraid, right? Um, So... For example, I'm a, if you're an Enneagram kind of person, I'm a three on the Enneagram, so uh, I'm afraid to fail, so I relentlessly push myself to succeed. So a lot of times the things that I'm doing out of fear actually look like courage to people like you, right? And many of us relate to that. But by the mercies of God loves me so I can cultivate the virtue of courage, I can repent and develop habits of the soul that will plant and nourish seeds that lead to what scripture calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So all of that leads back again to the question that I want to answer, which is, what is courage? I'm going to answer that question from a book by a philosopher named Joseph Pieper. Uh, he's, a, in spite of his funny name, which I did laugh a little bit when I heard it first. So Go ahead. Um, He's a 20th century German Catholic philosopher He saw the rise and fall of the Third Reich in his own nation uh, and uh, followed by the communist takeovers uh, surrounding him. He's a very brave man, a remarkable man, and a prophet in many ways. Uh, And the book is called The Four Cardinal Virtues. And in this book, Pieper summarizes and expands upon the teachings of the early church fathers and the medieval scholastics, particularly Thomas Aquinas, uh, but many others as well. So what he says about courage and the other virtues is not necessarily of his own thought, uh, but his, but very deeply rooted in the church and in Christian tradition and in philosophy. Uh, and then he takes them and expands and applies them today. Uh, so these are very old and very deep ideas. The book, The Four Cardinal Virtues, is a really, it's a thoughtful uh, devotional study of what the medieval church called the cardinal virtues. It's in the title. It's a good title. Then um, they are prudence, justice, fortitude, or courage, and temperance. Those are the four cardinal virtues. Uh, and cardinal means hinge. So that means that these virtues are the hinges upon which our lives hang in turn. In other words, everything depends on them. They carry the weight and determine the angle or trajectory of the future of our lives. So speaking of fortitude, Pieper writes this, quote, "'Fortitude presupposes vulnerability.' Without vulnerability, there can be no possibility of fortitude. An angel cannot be brave because he's not vulnerable. To be brave actually means to suffer injury. Because man is by nature vulnerable, thus he can be brave. End quote. So courage, then, is a virtue that is dependent on our fallen state. It is the fallenness of the world and the risk that it takes to live here that makes courage possible and valuable. It is a human virtue. This is another, in an endless line of reasons, why the incarnation of Christ matters so much. The cross was the bravest act in the history of the world, and it was only possible because God made himself vulnerable able to be hurt, able even to die. Philippians 2 tells us that our Lord, this is a familiar passage, that our Lord emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So thus we come to the core of the Christian life, which is the imitation of Christ, as the New Testament tells us repeatedly. So specifically, we imitate Christ by walking in his footsteps, which carried him down the Via Dolorosa, which is Latin for the way of weeping, the way of the cross. In other words, we follow Christ unto death. To be brave means, then, that we make ourselves vulnerable unto death. Pieper says this in his chapters on fortitude. Here's another quote. Quote, all fortitude has reference to death. Every courageous action has as its deepest root the readiness to die. Though viewed from without, it may appear entirely free from any thought of death. Courage looks like you're not scared. It looks like you act without any fear of metaphorical or literal death. That's what it looks like but it is at at heart in embracing a readiness to die. So whether courage looks like, you know, I'm a classics teacher, so whether courage looks like leading a frontal assault on the walls of Troy or writing 300 words on a Tuesday, the point is that courage is vulnerable. It requires a readiness to die, whether in a physical or a metaphorical sense. This means that we must be ready to die to our sins, our passions, our expectations, our ideologies, our plans, our curated hopes for our artistic vocations, everything. So we define courage then as the readiness to die. And I think this is a masterful definition of courage, but it raises some questions, right? Uh, To me, the first question is, what does it mean to die? And the second question is, what is worth dying for? So let us reflect on what it means to die. Our family worships in the Orthodox tradition, which means that I'm part of a Christian tradition that greatly reveres and constantly remembers the death of the saints. The stories of martyrs are daily spiritual nourishment to Christians in church and at home, and we call a home the little church. And it was Tertullian, an early church father, who said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, There's more than one way, though, to lay down your life for the life of the world. The traditions of the church tell us that there are three forms of martyrdom. Uh, Red martyrdom, which is the shedding of blood. Green martyrdom, which is abandoning everything and going to live as a hermit. Uh, which I'm sure is an attractive form of martyrdom to many of us in this room, right? And then white martyrdom, which is attained through ascetic struggles. This is an ordinary life lived in daily sacrificial love, dedicated to repentance through fasting, prayer, almsgiving, and the sacraments. So most of us will not be granted the grace of red martyrdom nor will most of us be called to green martyrdom. That's why we're here in this room instead of off on a mountain somewhere. Uh, But all of us can attain to white martyrdom. And for most of us, that is the extent of how we will imitate Christ's sufferings in this life. Monastics are the original white martyrs, uh, of course, but regular folks can be white martyrs too. Like Christ, we can lay down our lives for the life of the world through ordinary holiness. I think for artists, this is particularly valuable because art is so self-revelatory that it is a creature of extremes, right? Extreme self-focus versus extreme God and others focus. An artist must die to the first and embrace the second. And that's hard. It takes courage because courage is the readiness to die to oneself for the sake of love. So more on that later, the specifics of what that might potentially mean for many of us in this room, but now I wanna turn our attention to the question, if courage is readiness to die, then what is worth dying for? This is a question very much at the forefront of our culture right now. And really, there's only one thing worth dying for, and that is the life of the world. That's what Christ died for. According to Socrates, virtue is anything that is beneficial to the soul. I love that definition of virtue. Uh, And then he says this. He says, quote, all the qualities of the soul are in themselves neither beneficial nor harmful. But accompanied by wisdom or folly, they become beneficial or harmful. In other words, courage is not a virtue unless it is oriented towards its proper object. Courage can be inverted, selfish, diabolical. We know from stories that all the great villains are courageous. Joseph Pieper again, quote, the brave man must first know what the good is, and he must be brave for the sake of the good, end quote. So it remains to us to submit courage to goodness. It may take courage to reject a friend or leave your husband or rant on social media, but those things, however courageous, are not good. There are occasions in which such travesties become necessary, right? But they're not good in themselves. The better courage is probably to forgive your friend, reconcile with your husband, and hold your tongue because there's no actual virtue in doing hard things unless they are good things. Do not mistake drastic and irrevocable action for moral courage. They're not the same thing. For most of us, courage will continue to look like getting up early on a Wednesday to make coffee and to pray and to read the word and return again to the steadfast, unromantic, mundane work of ordinary life along with the courage to create redemptive art. Most of the time, courageous people do not look like superheroes. We have dark circles under our eyes, we eat peanut butter out of the jar, we've worn through our gap joggers, and we haven't showered in three days. But we're doing the next good thing. In other words, most of the time, courage looks exactly like humility. This is a good transition to the second question of this talk, which is why does an artist need courage? I find that a very easy question to answer honestly, but a difficult one to implement. Artists Artists need courage because of the nature of the artistic vocation. You need it for two things. One, artists need courage to access people's hearts. And secondly, artists need courage to be humble, guardians and revolutionaries. And I'll explain what I mean for that in a minute. So first, artists need courage to access people's hearts. I'm going to read you something from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I'm not going to give you any context for this. If you've read this book, you'll recognize it right away. If not, go read this series. Finally, the truth. Lying with his face pressed against the dusty carpet of the office where he had once thought he was learning the secrets of victory, Harry understood at last that he was not supposed to survive. His job was to walk calmly into death's welcoming arms. Along the way, he was to dispose of Voldemort's remaining links to life so that when at last he flung himself across Voldemort's path and did not raise a wand to defend himself, The end would be clean, and the job that ought to have been done in Godric's hollow would be finished. Neither would live. Neither could survive. He felt his heart pounding fiercely in his chest. How strange that in his dread of death, it pumped all the harder, valiantly keeping him alive. But it would have to stop, and soon. Its beats were numbered. How many would there be time for? as he rose and walked through the castle for the last time, out into the grounds and into the forest. Terror washed over him as he lay on the floor with that funeral drum pounding inside him. Would it hurt to die? All those times he had thought it was about to happen and escaped, he'd never really thought of the thing itself. His will to live had always been so much stronger than his fear of death, yet it did not occur to him now to try to escape. It was over, he knew it, and all that was left was the thing itself dying, if he could only have died on that summer's nights when he had left number four Privet Drive for the last time, when the noble phoenix feather wand had saved him, if he could only have died like Hedwig so quickly that he could not have known it had happened, or if he could have launched himself in front of a wand to save someone he loved, he envied even his parents' deaths now. This cold-blooded walk to his own destruction would require a different kind of bravery." He felt his fingers trembling slightly and made an effort to control them. Although no one could see him, the portraits on the wall were all empty. Slowly, very slowly, he sat up. And as he did so, he felt more alive and more aware of his own living body than ever before. Why had he never appreciated what a miracle he was, brain and nerve and pounding heart? It would all be gone, or at least he would be gone from it. His breath came slow and deep, and his mouth and his throat were completely dry, but so were his eyes. Artists, listen to me. Everything that I just said about death, all the research that I did, everything I said about courage, Everything that centuries of the greatest thinkers and philosophers have ever written in the most eloquent prose enduring over the centuries and given back to you here today and in other places was not only better said, but more fully known and more deeply felt in that passage I just read to you from that children's book. Artists need courage because art has so much latent potential to ignite change through accessing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. The power of art is the power to access the heart as well as the mind, to enable us to feel the weight of the mysteries of being human. We need that. We need fewer opinions and more mysterious, courageous, and sacrificial works of art in this generation. Opinions and ideological stands are easy. Getting to the heart is something else. We live in a generation that requires Christians to have immense courage without equipping us with any substantially grounded virtue or wisdom. Perhaps that's true for every generation, but we live in this one, and that's what we're seeing played out around us. Artists, this is a job for you. We need courageous artists, artists that are willing to die, to lay their lives down for the life of the world, to speak into a divided culture with messages of hope and healing. That leads us to the second reason why artists need courage, which is to be humble guardians and revolutionaries. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. I'm going to share with you the way that I see this. Uh, I shared this metaphor with the Artists Guild uh, the other night, and it's worth contemplating again. I want you to picture in your minds a medieval window arch in a great cathedral. You know the kind that I'm talking about, like this, right? Pointing at the top. There's not any in this room. Oh, right behind me. Hey, guys, look at that. Thank you. (laughs) There's that face thing again, right? I do not have eyes in the back of my head. Facing outward. All right, look at that. (laughs) The arch is built of stones, one upon the other, ending in a point. Now, if you think about it, this is basically a structure of blocks in which each side of the structure wants to fall down. right? Without the other side, it would fall. But it can't because it's held by the other side and vice versa. And that sense of prevented fall is what makes an arch strong and enduring. An arch is the only architectural structure that can bear the weight of the great cathedrals, and it gains its strength from the tension and harmony of competing forces. Also, at the same time that it bears the weight, it lets the light in. This is another aspect of the moral beauty of art. Artists throughout the ages create artifacts that speculate on what it means to be human, to suffer, to have joy, to grieve, to give, to build, to fight to mend, to participate in the life of the world in every way. But the artists give that perspective often from opposing perspectives. They're each stones on on the other side of the arch. And they meet in the middle. And they hold each other up. I think that the arch's two sides are what we would call today roughly and inaccurately uh, conservative and liberal. I hate the way these two terms have been abused, so I will call them something else, but first I want to tell you the true meaning of these very old words that have been distorted in the public square. Conservative simply means a desire to conserve, to protect, to preserve something. A conservative person desires to protect and preserve what is good. Liberal means generous. In the past, to call somebody liberal was a compliment that meant you're a generous person. A liberal education, for example, taught the liberal arts or a knowledge that a person should have in order to be a free citizen of the world. Thus, a liberal person desires to remove obstacles and to advance access to what is good. So in these senses, we probably relate to both, right? Which is as it should be. And these are the competing forces on each side of the arch. And for the remainder of this talk, I'll refer to the conservative folks as guardians and the liberal folks as revolutionaries. It takes some of the weight off of those terms that we can't help but interpret them through. So a guardian loves what is good and beautiful about a culture and fights to preserve it and to ensure that all people benefit from it. A revolutionary desires to disrupt what is flawed in a culture in order to advance goodness and beauty in a new way. These are the two sides of the arch that hold up a culture, and they let the light into it. In other words, we need each other, and we will collapse without the other. When these get reduced to ideology and dogma, as happens in every generation, especially in the American two-party system, and especially in a time of collective trauma when we are clinging to the things we know. We disrupt the harmony of competing forces in properly ordered souls and societies. Furthermore, when we become so firmly entrenched in taking sides that we can no longer see the goodness and the humanity in a person with an opposing viewpoint, that's usually, that's always destructive to individuals and to societies. And these distortions of perceptions are great tragedies, because at heart, if you're a guardian and you meet a revolutionary and you both love what is good, you're not enemies. You are allies in the life of the world. And I sometimes wonder if this dynamic is too firmly entrenched in the public square to be salvaged at this point. Maybe not, but sometimes in my darker moments, I think it is. But we Christians are not the public square. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are the church, militant, and we should do better. But this is where courage comes in. Who amongst us is equal to the vulnerability of unity in a divided world? Who's willing to die to their anxiety about the other side? their fears about safety or freedom or national leadership or health or education or whatever. right? Who, who, who will have the fortitude to love like Christ, to die to ideology for the sake of love and to create something beautiful out of that unity? Embracing this is courageous artistry with potential to be healing forces in a divided world. So let's look at the world's greatest piece of literature, the Bible. Hebrew poetry is some of the loveliest in the world, and biblical poetry is a series of artistic masterpieces. So let me read you something. This is from Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their god, they drink the wine of those who have been fined." Do you hear it, guardians and revolutionaries, in both heartbreakingly beautiful and haunting poetry? Judah is rejected for rejecting the law of God and not keeping his statutes. That's for the guardians. Israel has been rejected for selling the righteous for silver and trampling the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. That's for the revolutionaries. The Bible, particularly its poetry, is an artistic artifact that embraces a unified vision of both justice and preservation. The messages of Hebrew poetry are over and over again inherently conservative in this. Return to God. Keep to the old ways. Restore the life of the community. Remember and embrace the traditions of our people. And also inherently revolutionary. Provide justice to the oppressed. Be merciful and inclusive to those suffering among you. Repent of exploiting the weak. Embrace the stranger and the alien. More than anything artists right now, today, in this cultural moment, we need your courage to look more and more like humility. So that like the Old Testament prophets, you can be both guardians and revolutionaries in the life of this generation. We need you to have the courage to listen to each other and create art that honors the Imago Dei in each other and in the world. We need artists who long for the kingdom of God, As Rich Mullins is right, right? If I weep, let me weep as a man who is longing for his home. It's courageous to see past the kingdom of man into the kingdom of God and to create art that declares it will not be so in the mended wood, as S.D. Smith says so eloquently in his books. So tell us a better story that's out there than the one that's out there in the public square. Do it without your favorite, precious pet ideology that alienates people. Take out the jargon and speak simply and clearly about goodness, truth, and beauty through your art. Take a stand for what's good. If you're a revolutionary, be a good one. Own it. If you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly, right? There's nothing wrong with that. We're building a cathedral, not a wall. So it's just fine for you to align yourself and your work with one side of the competing forces, but join in the arch. Don't try to just build a tower. It would be better for you to have the courage to do both though. That's better because it's more fully human, more nuanced and complex, and it will lead to better art. So have the fortitude to be ready to die when it is necessary. Be ready to see beyond. Be ready to lay your opinions down for the life of the world, because only the life of the world is worth dying for. And all this sounds like really lofty, and it is. But it raises some questions, right? How can an artist be courageous? And this is a particularly relevant question in this cultural moment, which has uncovered really deep fault lines in our individual lives and in our communities. So how do we take meaningful action that cultivates courage in our hearts, both for our own sake and for the life of the world, which will manifest in the art that we create? And again, the connection between courage and humility is so profound and counterintuitive. Um, I'm thinking Joseph Pieper, who I've referenced before in his definitions, he was a a student of Thomas Aquinas, uh, the great medieval scholastic. And Thomas Aquinas was himself uh, a student of Aristotle, um, so, so much of what we have in the Western church, at least, comes from the classics. Uh, because so much was built upon Thomas Aquinas, who built everything on Aristotle. I mean, like, pretty much everything. You can find it all in Aristotle. And, it's, and Aquinas took it and redeemed it. Um, so, Aristotle wrote a book called Ethics. Uh, which I teach in my high school classes. It's not a very hard book to read. It's lovely. Uh, and he defines virtue, Aristotle does, as the mean between two extremes. So think of a continuum, right, with the deficiency of the virtue on this side and the excess of the virtue on the other side, and the mean, the mean is the harmony between the two that's right in the middle, right? So think of courage. Uh, and courage is the mean between the extremes of cowardice, the deficiency of courage, and rashness or recklessness, which is the excess of courage. This is so relevant in our cultural moment right now, right? The people who can't see the nuance, you want to talk about masks, right? And now we've got coward. Everyone's accusing everybody over here of cowardice and everybody over here with recklessness, right? When what's the mean? What's the courageous response to wearing a mask? It's a, it's, it's a little question, but it's big right now. It's worth contemplating. This is relevant in our own hearts and all of us are drawn one way or the other. Are you tempted to be rash? Are you tempted to be cowardly? Ask yourselves, how can I move toward the mean? It happens just one little step at a time. No one is born courageous. You move towards it on a continuum. Let that be the way that it is right now. And it's always guided by wisdom and humility. A few concrete actions that are always wise and humble and will always lead to further redemptive action. uh, I'm going to give you some ideas for that, along with my favorite quote. Again, I shared this with the artist the other night. Uh, My favorite quote about art, which is, beauty awakens the soul to act. That's from Dante. Dante. Uh, from Purgatorio, it's, an, it's, an, it's a delightful quote, simple, just a few words, brilliant writing. <laughs> beauty awakens the soul to act. If it doesn't awaken the soul to act, if it doesn't awaken your soul, you haven't truly experienced the beauty. Contemplate it longer. So a few ideas on this. First one will not surprise you that I'm going to say it, uh, and that is to read <laughs> because you become what you behold. I'm talking to a group of readers, so it almost feels unnecessary, but at the very least I can applaud you and inspire you. Reading matters. It's far more than a hobby. It's directed thinking, which we all need a little more uh, directed thinking right now. I'm sure many of us have those anxious racing thoughts. I'm an intelligent woman, Right? But there are nuanced thoughts that I have read in book that I would never have been able to conjure on my own, such as, what is courage? <laughs> right? I needed to encounter them outside of myself. I needed to read them or listen to them or hear them from somebody and then weigh them in my own mind against other thoughts. This is a process that makes a person courageous, insightful, wise, and redemptive. And no matter who you are, nonfiction is not enough. Reading opinions about the plight of oppression is entirely different from encountering the stories of wounded people. And deceptive cultural narratives are so insidious on both sides that only courageous love for people whose stories that you encounter can overcome our desire to be proven right. Merely reading about things makes ideologues not fully human participants in the life of the world. This is true, and (laughs) this is true for you, not just the guy you argued with about Trump yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) We are called to our own repentance and participation in the brokenness of the world. So think about the last time you allowed the story of a human person on the other side of an issue you care about to impact you even if it didn't change your opinion. I'm not talking about being easily swayed. Uh, and by, no, by all means, we must be morally good, which means people of principle. But I'm talking about staying open to being profoundly moved. Something that the morning paper really will rarely do for us, but Othello or Wuthering Heights can. We must be encountering human stories, and I recommend that at least some of them be great stories, beautifully told of literature. The second action to take is to encounter great art, not just books, but any art, the best art. Don't be pretentious or Epicurean, but be humble. Be willing to die to your own bubble of what you like to look at or read or listen to. Uh, Encounter something beyond it, art that moves you, art that you don't get. Learn about it. Imitate it. It will make your work better and fuller and more nuanced. Also, be in a community of interpreters, like the Artists Guild. We've talked a lot this morning and heard uh, heard a lot from speakers talking about the value of community. I won't add too much to it, but it matters a lot. And yes, be in the church. Yes, the institutional church. Scripture tells us, do not forsake assembling together. The church and the artist need each other. Why? Because of the sin of forgetfulness. Do you remember in the silver chair? The great sin that the children commit over and over again is not an intentional malicious disobedience, but that they just didn't care enough to remember what Aslan said. And Aslan gives Jill on the mountain, the Trinitarian, the threefold call, remember, remember, remember. Memory makes us who we are. And people, the church and the artist, are the two great keepers of memory of the faith. No wonder the powers of darkness strive so hard to keep the artist and the church apart. Imagine what we can do if we're united in the face of cultural trauma and division. And finally, put your art out there. When your art's ready, publish it, promote it, post it. You are sub-creators with Christ. Be courageous enough to own that. Be bold. Get it out there. I want to tell you something about Orthodox temples, the churches where we worship, and then I want to close with a story. Temples are full of icons or windows into heaven. It's one of the defining characteristics of the Orthodox church. They are art, but they are more than art. They're conduits of grace. So an Orthodox temple begins as just a plain building, a mission, we call it, and it's bare, which it has bare walls and a priest. And as the temple grows families and small communities form to commission icons on the walls of the church. They provide the funds and they provide the reason. For example, you might go to your priest and say, my saint uh, is, I, I, I really love the story of this saint. This is a saint I pray to who I feel protects me. Let's get an icon of this saint on the walls of the church. Here's a scriptural story that's moving to me. Pascha's coming up. We're about to worship at Easter. Let's get some Paschal icons up on the wall. The church grows in beauty, then, beauty that comes from the hearts and the actions of its own community. It's the community that funds the icons and asks for them. Stories of martyrdom, of courage, of love, fidelity, renunciation begin to cover the people as they pray and receive the sacraments. The pictures and the stories that the church has participated in over time form a covering over the people. Historically, a temple was rarely completed in a priest's lifetime. It was a generational endeavor, a communal endeavor, one that was not about the iconographer or the families or the priests or even the building itself, but about the kingdom of God increasing in glory over the course of time. Or as 2 Corinthians 4 says, being transformed into the image of God from glory to glory. With that as background, I'm going to tell you a story. During the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, a story is told about a single icon of the Theotokos, or the mother of God, holding the Christ child in her arms that had been commissioned by a family in a small village in Siberia many generations before. When the Bolsheviks came to destroy the churches, a woman from the family rushed into the burning church to rescue the icon and save it from the flames. And it was engulfed in flames. And she knew it was going to be ruined beyond repair. But she took it off the wall, hid it in her cloak, and rushed out of the temple. And when the terrible night was over, she was horribly burned, disfigured. And the shape of the burning icon was imprinted over her heart where she had hidden it. And she suffered from her wounds so badly that she died shortly afterward praises on her lips, entering into her glory. And as for the icon, when the fires died, it was found to be wholly intact and undamaged. That is courageous artistry, laying down our lives to protect the image of God in the face of great evil, readiness to die, with the imprint of the wounds of Christ upon our hearts, knowing that the image of God will endure beyond us in the beauty of the Church. Thank you for letting me speak to you today.